morning, ladies. And good morning to Ashley. I know you're out there. Good morning. I'm Deb Haygood, and I want to say I cannot believe we are here. I mean, it's a miracle. Really, I feel like it is a miracle. I got up yesterday morning, went to work at 6 o'clock to JPS, and ladies, on my way to work, the roads were covered with ice and white sleet. And as I walked in, the snow was coming down. And at 7 o'clock, when I wa- and, and, and in my mind, I thought, well, there is no way that we are going to have Bible study tomorrow as the temperatures were dropping. As I walked out at 7 o'clock, my husband came to pick me up. I mean, I, I just couldn't get over it. I was like this little kid the whole way home. I'm like, where's the ice? Why, why is the, how did this road get dry? How could it possibly get dry? What happened? Look at the temperature. I mean, I just went on and on. He was just like... And he, you know, it was a gradual process for those of you that were out watching it, I guess. But for me, who had heard the sleet come down, I hardly slept Wednesday night thinking, oh, am I going to be able to make it to work? And then I get there and see all the snow and the ice, and then to walk out and it's gone. It is a miracle. And here we are today. And I hope that you stayed warm and safe over the last two weeks. Um, In fact, there were lots of falls. I heard lots of stories. It's pretty funny when you're not the one falling, but how many of you actually fell? Any of you? Oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. Well, I hope you weren't hurt very badly. Yeah, I heard lots of stories. Friends telling me stories on the news. You saw the policemen, you know, the firemen falling as they were trying to rescue people. And one of the funniest things, I hated to say this, but the hardest part about getting to work at JPS is getting through the parking lot. It's icy and, you know, several nurses fell. But the best story was this gal coming in, and she'd almost made it to the front door, and she waved her hand and said, We made it! And down she went. And I thought, you know, pride goeth before fall. Kind of like this lesson we're talking about. We kind of laughed. Of course, she's laughing because she's embarrassed, but later she's probably thinking, why are those people laughing at me? It's so hard. But thank you for coming out on this cold day, and thank you for coming to study the Word of God, to study Isaiah, God's Salvation Symphony. And today we're going to look at chapters 36 through 39. And when we finish today, we will have been through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Now that is a great deal. That's a great deal. In fact, we've covered that whole first section, um, the section on judgment. That's why we went sort of fast through it. But the good news is now we're going to slow down. This next section is called Comfort, and we're only going to look at maybe two or three chapters each week. Lynn Kitchens will be coming next week, and will be bringing us chapter 40 of Isaiah. And your questions for that next section, I hope you picked them up off your table, because we had those today. You want to make sure you get your questions for this next section. So we've covered a great deal of material here, and I thought that we would go have a quick review to talk about where we've been in this book of Isaiah. And it starts out with God, because Isaiah is all about God, the Holy One of Israel. And he calls Isaiah to give his message, God's message, to God's people. And God's um, people are the nation Israel. And they're called this because of the covenant that God made with Abraham way back in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And we've talked about that before. They're called God's people, God's children, because they are all descendants from Abraham. The 12 tribes are descendants of Abraham. Now we read in Exodus that um, God's people come out of slavery from Egypt, led by Moses through the wilderness into the promised land, that land that God promised to um, Abraham. 
And the 12 tribes settle there and they divide up the land among themselves. The 12 tribes are scattered out and this is called Israel. And at first they're ruled by judges. This is about 300 year period. Then they call out for kings. And we've got the timeline up there. The first king was Saul and then it was King David and then his son Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom splits. We have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel keeps the name Israel, and they're made up of 10 of the 12 tribes, 10 tribes in the northern kingdom. And the largest tribe is Ephraim. So we said last week, sometimes the northern kingdom is called Ephraim. Now, the, and by the way, they had no good kings, no kings that followed after God. Now, the southern kingdom of Israel is made up of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and it is called Judah. And in Judah, we have the uh, city of Jerusalem, the capital city. That's where the kings had lived before the kingdom split. Um, And this is where Solomon built the temple of God. And in that temple, in the very center, is the holy place the Holy of Holies, and that is where the Spirit of God dwelt. So Jerusalem is called the City of God. Sometimes it's called Zion. And we um, see that after Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, becomes king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And after Rehoboam dies, his son becomes king. And after his son, his son becomes king, and so on and so on. So that all the kings of Judah come from the line of David. And this is because of a promise that God made to David. And I've got it on your verse sheet. We've talked about it several weeks, so I thought I'd just put it down there. It's 2 Samuel 7:16, And God tells David, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Now, this prophecy um, and promise to David is eventually and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And we see that in Luke 1, 32 and 33. This is the angel Gabriel talking to Mary, telling her that she is going to have a baby. And this is what he says. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. End. So you see there that the same word used, Jesus was going to fulfill this promise to David. And we know that that's uh, going to pass because we've learned in the book of Isaiah that Jesus is coming again. He's coming in the end times and he is literally going to reign on the throne in Jerusalem. So we have David and his um, descendants reigning in Judah. And God sends Isaiah to tell Judah um, this message about himself. And so, um, and, and let me say this, there are not all good kings in Judah, but there were some good kings. We've already seen that Ahaz was a bad king. But last week we said Ahaz has died and his son, Hezekiah, has become king and he is a very good king. He's a very good king. So um, we went through these uh, chapters in Isaiah, and I want to just kind of quickly go through those before we start today. Um, Isaiah is giving this message to Judah, this southern uh, kingdom. And the first 12 chapters 
Isaiah is giving them a wake-up call, and he's calling them back to God. And he begins by telling them who God is. Um, All these great attributes and characteristics that we've seen of God. God is the Holy One. He's their Redeemer. He's their Creator. He's their Provider. He is the Holy One of Israel. And then we see um, that he says after he calls them back to God, he tells them that they needed to repent of their sin. And then he begins to list their sin because some of them don't even realize that they are sinning against God. And so you remember those sins that we saw, the sins of pride and greed. They were drunkards. They were corrupt. They were cruel. They were oppressive. These were the sins that um, God pointed out to them through Isaiah. And he says, turn, turn, Back to me, or punishment is inevitable. Turn back to me, or punishment is inevitable. Even those that thought they were religious needed to repent and turn back because Isaiah had said, you're just going through the motions. It's just empty religious rituals, and God is sick of it. Turn back to God. Then last week we looked at chapters 13 through 35, and it was a big section, but all those chapters had to do with the judgments against the nations that surrounded um, Judah. And they, um, the main point of this, God says, you are in sin as well, and basically he's saying you will be um, punished and defeated by Assyria. And the reason that these judgments were given were really not for the ears of these nations, but for the ears of Judah. We said that last week in the lesson. It was for the ears of Judah, and there were several reasons. One was to encourage um, God's people that God was not going to let them go unpunished, these countries that had oppressed Israel. And also to show that God was not only God over Israel, but he was God over the whole world. He was the supreme, sovereign ruler of all. But the main reason he gave these judgments was to produce faith in Judah, to produce faith in Judah towards their God, that they would trust in God and trust in God alone. Because Isaiah says, don't trust in these other nations. They are going to fall under Assyria as well. Don't make alliances with them. Trust in God alone. And that was the main message of last week. It's really been the message all through the book. Trust in God. And he also tells them that um, God is powerful, sovereign, just, compassionate, and he will not let Assyria destroy Judah. Not so for the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, he tells them last week in uh, chapter 28, they would fall to the hand of Assyria. And sure enough, they do. And you see that on the timeline. It happened in 722 B.C. And why? Last week we read it was because they ignored the word of God. They ignored the word of God. How important the word of God is in our lives. We need to read it and study it just like you're doing. We need to memorize it and put it in our hearts and meditate on it. It is so important for us. So the northern kingdom of Israel is overtaken by Assyria. And we come today to chapters 36 through 39. And we see this historical interlude. And really this is very important because it connects the first half of Isaiah with the second half of Isaiah. The events in these chapters fulfill many of Isaiah's prophecies and at the same time they foreshadow Judah's um, exile in Babylon.
That is who is going to take Judah captive. Not Assyria, but Babylon. And so it's foreshadowed in these chapters. Now, um, in your homework, I told you that chapters 36 and 37 actually happen about one or two years after chapters 38 and 39. But Isaiah puts them first because um, so many of the predictions come to pass in these chapters. So he puts those first, and that's how we're going to look at it. So let's open up to chapter 36. These chapters are all about God and Hezekiah. Hezekiah's relationship with God and we see it through these prayers that Hezekiah lifts up. And I love this because we don't just see one prayer, we see several prayers of Hezekiah. And as you're turning to chapter 36, turn there, I'm going to read um, about Hezekiah from 2 Kings. I didn't get this verse on your verse sheet. 2 Kings chapter 18. And we uh, read there, it says that Hezekiah became king and reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, and he cut down the Asherah poles. This was idol worship going on, probably set up by his father Ahaz. And then it also tells us that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. So let's begin. We see that um, what we're really reading there is Hezekiah was a great, good king of Judah, and he, in essence, followed wholeheartedly after God. So let's begin reading uh, in verse 1 of chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. So what we have here is Assyria, um, the king of Assyria now is Sennacherib, and he's got his big army, and he has attacked all of the cities in Judah around Jerusalem so that Jerusalem is standing alone. And he's got his army about 20 miles away in Lachish, and he sends this field commander, which is really like an Assyrian spokesperson, to say um, these things that we're going to read about to Jerusalem and to King Hezekiah. Now, somebody in the... Um, small group leaders meeting said that this was sort of the equivalent of smack talk. And that's kind of what we're going to get here. I called it um, psychological warfare because they're going to come and they're going to taunt Jerusalem. And they also, while they're doing that, he is mocking God. So let's see what this field commander says in verse 4. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt. And then he talks about Egypt. And the truth there is that Egypt wasn't a good person for them to um, make an alliance with. Isaiah had said that very thing last week in chapters 30 through 32. Do not, make an, uh, do not depend on Egypt because they cannot help you. So that's truth. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, and if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? Now, 
this is half-truth. We just read that Hezekiah did remove those high places. But those weren't to worship God. That was idol worship. So we see him mixing in truth and half-truth there. Very deceiving. And then he comes down here to verse 10 and he says, Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Well, there we have an outright lie because we know Isaiah has told them that God has said, Assyria will not overtake you. So this is a lie. And I thought how much the world does that today, how much Satan still does that. He mixes truth with half-truth and lies so that it's hard for us to tell. We see something and we think, well, that's kind of the truth, and we're deceived. We have to stay... Um, focused on the Word of God, and we have to stay in prayer with God so that we can discern what is the truth and what is lies. It's not always easy, as we see here with the field commander and what he is saying. And then um, the three spokespeople that uh, Hezekiah has sent out asks them, hey, don't talk in Hebrew, talk in Aramaic. It was the diplomatic language. But um, the field commander does not do that because he wants everybody that can to hear what he's saying because now he's going to give temptations. We go down to verse 16 and it says, do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me, and then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So he's tempting them here with what they don't have. They probably are very hungry. Food's probably on short supply. And they probably, maybe even water is on short supply. And so here he dangles out in front of them, kind of like a carrot in front of a horse, this good thing that they want in hopes of tempting them. And he says in 18, Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord would deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? He's quite confident here, and so he mocks God. Where are the gods? And he lists all these people. And he says, how then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? I mean, this, I mean, are you kind of scared here? I hear this kind of ominous music when something bad is about to happen. I see this guy on thin ice. He is, in essence, calling God a liar. He's saying, don't believe God. This is, these are lies that he can save you. And it says that the people remained silent because that is what King Hezekiah had told them to do. And so then the three um, spokespeople that were listening come in from this and they go to King Hezekiah and they tell King Hezekiah what the field commander has said. And it says they tear their clothes. And it says in verse 1 of 37 that Hezekiah does the same thing. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. Now, um, tearing your clothes and putting on sackcloth is a sign of mourning. It's a sign of humility. And so this is what Hezekiah does before he goes in before the Lord. And he also sends these um, uh, officials to... Isaiah, and he says, ask Isaiah to pray to God for us. And so they do, and the answer from God quickly comes back, and it's a word of encouragement. Isaiah tells Hezekiah that this is what God says in verse 6. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which, with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen. 
I am going to put a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Now remember that, um, because we're going to see that phrase again, cut down with the sword. So we get this quick word of encouragement, and um, I, I love it because we hear this certain report. We don't know what that is, but all of a sudden in the next few verses we see that the field commander and King Sennacherib, all of a sudden there's these reports, they hear these things, and it looks like Sennacherib is a little confused, but he does not want to give up on Jerusalem, and so he threatens King Hezekiah one last time in an attempt to get Hezekiah to surrender so that he will not have to go in and defeat him. And so he says this um, in a letter to King Hezekiah. Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? And he goes on to um, talk about all the different other gods that were unable to um, deliver those countries. So we see here that King Sennacherib is mocking God. He's calling God a liar. And he doesn't even uh, realize who God is. He doesn't know the power um, of God. He doesn't know the plan of God. But he is about to see the plan and the power of God. So Hezekiah, as he hears this news, we read in verse 14, he goes in and he spreads the letter out before God. I love that. I love that visual aid of spreading out our burdens before the Lord. And this is what Hezekiah does. And then he prays this prayer. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. What a beautiful prayer this is. What a powerful prayer powerful prayer that we see lifted up by King Hezekiah. And I want to take a second and look at the different elements in this prayer. And the first thing I see King Hezekiah doing in this time of um, great um, threat, great impending disaster in this national crisis, the first thing he does is he praises God. He knows who God is and he praises God. And this reminds Hezekiah who God is. First of all, he calls him the Lord Almighty. And we've talked about this phrase in Hebrew. It's Yahweh Sabaoth. It means the Lord of hosts, the God of the angel armies. And then secondly here, we see him praise God um, for being the personal God of Israel, where he says God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim. Now the cherubim were wooden um, uh, carvings of angels and they were placed in the Holy of Holies and I have on your verse sheet here 1 Kings 8 6 it talks about the priest brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple the most holy place 
and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. They were huge, about 15 feet wide, and below it was put the Ark of the Covenant, which had um, the tablets of stone from Moses, the Ten Commandments. And then listen to what happens. This is in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The presence of the Lord God filled the temple. And this is actually what Hezekiah is remembering when he talks about the God of Israel between the cherubim. He is the personal God of Israel. But then he goes on to say he's not only the God over Israel. He's the God over the whole world. He is the supreme ruler. He said, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. And not only that, you are the creator God. You've made it all. You've made heaven and earth. So he praises God with these four things, and I think it's very important for us to remember praise is important. Praise is important because it reminds us of who God is. When we begin our prayers with praise, God becomes bigger and bigger, and we become smaller and smaller, and we're humbled before God. We begin this um, teaching time every week with praising God. First we have praises with singing, and then we have your praises lifted up to God, and then we have more praises with singing, and we do that so that we can remember who God is before we open up his word and begin to study it. Maybe if you haven't done this before, you might want to try praising God at the beginning of your prayer time. And then we see that Hezekiah petitions God. He petitions God, and he asks God for two things. First, to see their plight. See where we are, God. Hear what's going on around us. And secondly, he asks God to deliver them. Why? So that God may be glorified. So that all the nations will understand that God is God and God alone. He is the only one true God. You know, Hezekiah's prayer is a great example of prayer for us in times of trouble. Maybe we want to first begin by praising God and remembering who he is. And then secondly, be honest with God, just like um, Hezekiah was in this time of trouble. Even though God knows what's going on with us, it's okay to lay it out before him. It's okay to go ahead and to tell him the troubles, the burdens that you're having. Lay it out before God. And then maybe we want to ask God to do what would bring him glory. Say, what will bring you glory in this situation, Lord? Or maybe what will bless others? Or what will help me to have a closer relationship with you? Then we're taking the focus off of ourselves and our time of trouble, and we're putting it on God. What could glorify God in this situation? Then we see God's answer to King Hezekiah's um, powerful prayer. And uh, it's quite a few verses, actually longer than um, Hezekiah's prayer, and so I'm going to kind of summarize some of it. But he begins, God begins by saying uh, in verse 23, Who do you think you're insulting, King Sennacherib? Who do you think you're insulting? The Holy One of Israel. That's who. And I mean, right now, I kind of hear symbols crashing, and I hear God's very... Uh, his voice very loud when he says, the Holy One of Israel. I mean, I'm kind of scared for Sennacherib. I keep thinking something is going to happen to you. 
I can't believe that you mocked God. And I think God's thinking, what are you thinking? And here he is with this confidence. And God says, this confidence you have, this power that you have, it was ordained by me. Verse 26, have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass. All that has happened was because God allowed it to. He's the one that gave Assyria and King Sennacherib power. But he goes on in verse 28 to say, But I know where you stay and when you come and go and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. He has had it with King Sennacherib, and he is going to take care of him. Then in this next part, we see that um, the Lord encourages Hezekiah to say there are going to be a couple more years of hard times. But by the third year, the crops will be plentiful and there will be a remnant of survivors that remains in Judah. So he's giving him hope here. And then look down to verse um, 33 and the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria, and here it is, here it comes, King Sennacherib. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. The Lord himself will defend Jerusalem. God is going to do it. And then we see what happens in verses 36. It's almost anticlimactic. We've had all these chapters and verses building up to this. And here we see what happens. 36. The angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and he stayed there. Now Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So we see that um, Sennacherib uh, is probably afraid of God at this point, and the army packs up, and they go back to Assyria, and they stay there. And then we have um, 38. Isaiah tacks this on. It probably happens about 20 years after this, but he wants um, us to see how the prophecy from Isaiah comes to pass. One day, while King Sennacherib was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nishrach, so we know it's an ungod, he probably realized that God was powerful, but he does not turn and believe in God or worship God. He's still worshiping the ungods um, that were probably fashioned by someone's hands. And it says his sons come in and they cut him down with the sword. The very same phrase that Isaiah had used um, in that chapter 37. Cut him down with the sword. And then his third son exceeds him as king. So we see that God is victorious. His plan continues. And we'll see um, the whole Assyrian Empire um, destroyed in about 75 years from now when the um, Babylonians um, rise up and become an empire and they take over Assyria. But King uh, Sennacherib meets his end about 20 years after he goes back to Nineveh. And this brings us to the last two chapters, 38 and 39. 
And as I said earlier, these take place before this siege. And that's important to remember. So remember that this siege and all this with King Sennacherib is going to happen about one or two years later. The siege came in 701 B.C. You see that on the timeline. And so this is probably around 702 B.C. And we read in verse 1, In those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. So we see right off the bat that this is a personal story about Hezekiah. Hezekiah is in a personal crisis. He's ill and he is going to die. So what does Hezekiah do? We see in verse 2. He turns his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So he turns to God and he prays and he weeps and he cries out in great anguish to God. And then we see God's answer. Verse 4. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. And here's God's answer. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps it had gone down. I love this because God gives Hezekiah so much more than he asked for. Have you ever prayed and asked God for something and he blesses you way more abundantly than you even thought he might? This is what we see here. Not only does he add 15 years to the life of Hezekiah, but he also says, and by the way, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of Assyria. Now that's going to be a really important thing about a year from now when all of a sudden King Sennacherib is camped outside the walls. And Hezekiah can remember that God promised that he would defend Jerusalem and Hezekiah from the king, Sennacherib. And then he also gives him a sign. He gives him this third thing, a sign. Now, um, we read in verse 22 that Hezekiah actually asked for this sign. And I don't want you to think this means unbelief on Hezekiah's part. Um, Actually, it's probably the opposite. Because you remember a couple weeks ago when Venita told us about Ahaz, Isaiah said, ask the Lord for a sign so that he can prove how faithful he is, how powerful he is. But Ahaz, in his unbelief, would not ask for a sign. But Hezekiah does. And so the Lord gives him this Um, sign. Now we don't know exactly what this um, stairway of Ahaz is. It might have been some sort of sundial where um, the sun goes down these stairs and they can tell the time. Um, No matter what it is, uh, it it takes a um, supernatural act of God to make the shadow go backwards. And that's what happens. And so he blesses Hezekiah by giving him 15 more years, by telling him, I will defend this city against Assyria, and by giving him this sign. And then we read Hezekiah's uh, prayer of praise, this hymn of praise, more music in the book of Isaiah. And it's a long um, hymn of praise, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. You talked about it in your homework, but it's a great... Um, praise, and it's a great thing to remember and to go through when you're in times of suffering because we see the beginning part of it that Hezekiah says how sad he was, 
how despairing and distressed he was. He was sad over the thought that he was um, going to die, that he was going to leave family and friends, that he wasn't going to be able to praise God anymore, that he was going down into this pit of destruction. It was Sheol. It was the grave. And it says that he was so despairing until finally he says, Oh, Lord, come to my aid. He finally calls out to God with tears and anguish and calls out to God. And then God grants him those three things we just said. And when Hezekiah sees this, he is humbled and he's grateful. We see here um, that he even says that I see why this happened to me. I understand now why I had um, this trouble come my way because it helped me to understand who you are, God. It humbled me. He was humbled by the power of God. Verse 16, it says, You restored me to health and let me live. He was humbled by the love of God. 17 says, In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. And he was humbled by the forgiveness of God. In verse, um, the end part of that says, You have put all my sins behind your back. And then Hezekiah says, So I will forever tell others about your faithfulness. I will sing and praise your name for all my life. Humble Hezekiah will sing praises to the Lord God. He realizes that um, the Lord has spared him, and he lifts this up in praise to God. You know, sometimes when we're in the midst of really hard situations, when we are struggling and suffering, um, we can see God's hand in the midst of it. Sometimes we don't see it until the end of it. Sometimes we can see it while we're in the midst of it. But remember to thank God. Remember to praise God. Remember that to, um, to be aware of how God is working in you, that you are being humbled before him. And learn... Um, these lessons that we learn in suffering. Do not waste the pain of the suffering. We can look back and see um, the lessons that Hezekiah learned. But we also come up with one problem here, and uh, some of you may have thought that on your own. What about the fact that we've been saying that God's plan cannot be thwarted? What about we've been saying that what Isaiah says will come to pass? And here he said, you are going to die, and God gives him 15 more years. The answer to that is that um, when we pray, God is not obligated to answer our prayer just like we ask for. So we are not in control. God is not a genie in a lamp that um, magically comes um, alive and gives us what we ask for. No, we are to go to God, and we are to pray, and we're to ask um, of God these things that we want. But God is not obligated to give it to us. So we are not in control. God is still in control. And then Barry Webb gives us this quote, and I love it because it sums it up so well. There is no conflict between God's absolute sovereignty and the power of prayer because, quite simply, this is the way God has chosen to work. Through prayer, God draws us up into his purposes, and he involves us in what he's doing. What a privilege. Even the desire to pray comes from God. So God works in and through our prayers to accomplish his purposes. God is powerful. He doesn't have to do that. 
He chooses to do that. He chooses to work through our prayers to accomplish his purposes. It reminds me a little bit of this illustration, and it's not ever a good illustration when we're comparing ourselves with God. But um, my little grandson, Dylan, loves to come and help Poppy mow the yard. And um, Poppy, it takes him twice as long, but he is thrilled to let Dylan help. And so he carries him around with the blower, and Dylan goes behind him with his little mower as um, my husband mows the yard. And it makes Dylan feel um, like he's really done a great thing. He feels like he's really helped Scott. And Scott loves it that Dylan is out there trying to help him. I think a little bit that's how it is. God wants us to pray. He's going to work through our prayers to accomplish his plan and his purposes. Not because he needs to, but because he loves us. And he wants to encourage us. And he wants us to be a part of all that's going on. So... Prayer is a privilege. We don't want to forget that. So let's go back to Hezekiah. Humble Hezekiah praising God in chapter 39 opens. And uh, the king of Babylon sends an envoy to Hezekiah uh, with gifts. Um, And the purpose here, or so it says, is to kind of wish him well after this recovery. But probably they come more sort of as uh, spies to see what all Hezekiah has. And it could also be the Babylonians worshipped the sun. That was their god, the sun god. So they might have wanted to see this staircase where this great thing happened with the shadow going backwards. We don't know for sure, but they probably were not there um, on a benevolent act. But Hezekiah kind of falls for the flattery, and it tells us in verse 2 that he shows them everything in his kingdom, all of his gold and his spices and his silver and his oil and his entire armory and every treasure he has. He shows it to um, these envoys from Babylon. How quickly Hezekiah forgets where his strength comes from. Pride has slipped in. And I think that's the lesson that he learns. Um, You have to be careful of pride in answered prayer. Oftentimes it's the same for us. It's right after some spiritual high, something great has happened, and we are very um, likely to succumb to pride. It's like pride is always crouching at our back door, just waiting to slip in. And we know that nothing good comes from pride. Every week we've talked about how God hates pride pride. So you kind of see Hezekiah is going to be in trouble now and uh, it doesn't take us long with Isaiah coming and saying, what did these men say and where did they come from? Hezekiah kind of owns up and says, well, I showed him. um, And then the prophet says, what did they see in your palace? And Hezekiah says, well, everything. And so here comes the prophecy. Verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become Enoch's in the palace of the king of Babylon. So we see here um, this why these chapters are put at the end. Here is the foreshadowing of Judah being taken captive by Babylon and living in exile in Babylon. 
And we know this comes to pass. I've got on your verse sheet, Daniel 1, 1 through 3. Let's read it quickly. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And then we skip some stuff, but we go on to see the king orders to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So everything Isaiah has prophesied comes to pass. Now it happens about a hundred years down the line, but the reason that we have this foreshadowing here is because the next section, opening up with chapter 40, Isaiah is now prophesying the restoration of Judah after 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And Isaiah wants um, to give the righteous these words of comfort and encouragement so that they might trust God and live righteously during this time. Isaiah is telling them, your punishment will not last forever. Restoration will come as you turn back to God. Sometimes punishment can be that refining act that brings us back to God. Isaiah wants them to know it will not last forever, that it is limited, and that you will come back to Judah. And we're going to see a lot of that uh, talked about in this next section of Isaiah. So in closing, let's talk for just a couple minutes about what we learn about prayer from King Hezekiah. What have we learned? First of all, prayer is essential in our relationship with God. It is essential. Uh, Mother Teresa said this, Prayer is as necessary as the air, as the blood in our bodies, as anything to keep us alive, to keep us alive to the grace of God. Prayer is essential. Praising God reminds us of who God is. Praise God. Be honest with God. Go to God in those times of trouble. Tell him how you're feeling. Johnny Erickson, in her book, When God Weeps, tells us um, this quote. The irony of questioning God is that it honors him. It turns our hearts away from ungodly despair toward a passionate desire to comprehend him. This is what happened to Hezekiah as he called out to God in his despair. Then he saw who God is and saw the actions of God. Be honest with God. Third, pray for his glory. Pray for what would glorify God. And thank God. Let's not forget to thank him. Pray in good times so that you will have faith to pray in the bad times and in the hard times. Pray in quiet solitude for long periods. Um, Hezekiah went in to the temple alone. And then also pray quickly as you walk through the day, as you're driving in your car, as you're with your kids. Pray through your day. We've learned to be still and listen. That was the great verse in Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. Sometimes when we're still, we hear God's voice. Sometimes we hear God's voice when we read the word of God. He speaks to us through his word. And then lastly, I want us to remember prayer is a privilege. Prayer is a privilege. Sarah Young, in her book, Dear Jesus, in her devotional, says this. She started out by saying, Marvel at the awesome wonder of being able to commune with the king of the universe anytime, anyplace. Never take this amazing privilege for granted. And then she prays this prayer of confession. Dear Jesus, I confess this often. I do take this awesome prayer privilege for granted. Even worse, at times I act as if I'm doing you a favor by spending time talking with you. 
forgive me for my foolish arrogance. That really struck a chord in me because sometimes, um, I hate to say that, but sometimes I think I am. I'm doing God a favor. How prideful that is. God invites us into prayer with him so that he can accomplish his works um, through our prayers. Prayer is a privilege. Prayer is important. Prayer is essential. I hope that you are encouraged to go out today and to spend more time talking and listening to God. Let's close by talking to him right now. Heavenly Father, you are a mighty God, and you are a faithful God, and you are a loving God. Father, you um, take such good care of us, and you provide for us, and you want to bless us. And yet, Father, our pride gets in our way so often, and we forget to trust you, and we begin to trust in all those other things, Father, that we know will not help us. They're not the solution. You are the answer, O Lord. Thank you, Father, for this word, for this great act of power, for the way that you keep your promises, for the way we see you work your plans out. Thank you for including us, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would give us a desire to pray, to pray every day, to pray more often every day. Father, I pray for these women in this room right now and those that are at home listening. I pray, Father, that you would bless them, that you would draw them close to you. Father, that we might continue to learn more about you as we study through this book of Isaiah. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.